everybody to fantasy baseball today april 24th happy friday chris and scott are here with me and chris you mentioned you're a carly ray jepson fan right oh yeah is she Love the carly one ray. is she the one who sings a song it's friday friday oh, jesus man that is offensive that oh. song was from rebecca black oh uh, it was a, a viral sensation, but not a not not a, a serious song. You're you're being very offensive. Carly Rae Jepsen uh, has released two of the best pop song, pop albums of the last 25 years. Call Me Maybe is a stone cold classic. Okay, uh, that's what I was thinking. Please show of. some respect to the Queen CRJ. The Queen. I've never heard her referred to as the Queen CRJ. Well, well, that's your fault. Because she you might be queen. right. You might be right. Uh, in other news, happy birthday, Chipper Jones, Omar Vizquel, and that cheater, Carlos Beltran, if they're out there listening. Uh, speaking of cheaters, the Red Sox were given their penalties the other day. Scott, did you have a chance to uh, take a gander at these penalties? Uh, they lost a second round pick. They were banned from their replay operator. Uh, and Alex Cora is also banned through the 2020 playoffs. So basically a slap on the wrist, Scott. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, this was closer to what I thought would happen to the Astros. I, I thought they really brought the hammer down on the Astros, despite what what uh, many would tell you. So, you know, after the Astros thing, I, I expected them to bring down the hammer similarly similarly on the, the Red Sox. But I guess there wasn't as much evidence that it was so widespread throughout the organization. So <sighs> they were reluctant to go that far, I guess. I mean, appears. the whole thing sounds kind of stupid. Like, I guess this is what happens when you give players immunity, because then you have a situation where obviously something was done wrong, and the only person who actually really gets punished is a replay room operator who nobody's ever heard of. But, like, if they're being punished, it's because they were gaining a competitive advantage, and there's really not a punishment here. Like, they lost a second round pick. Okay. They lost like a 7% chance that they get a, an average major league player. They okay. did, not officially, but they made it official after this was announced. They did lose their manager. Right, but he was already gone. Yeah. There's, there's well, not they, actually like a punishment. Now, he was gone because of his involvement in in this, but... Right, it, it was kind of a self-inflicted punishment, I guess. Yeah, it it, it just, I don't know. Like, this was their second uh, time being caught doing something like this, too. And where it's just like, no, it was just the one guy in the replay room. Nobody else knew about it. It's, it. it seems a little absurd to me. Nothing happened. It's crazy. Basically, nothing happened. So, I don't know. With both the Houston Astros, the Boston Red Sox, a bunch of cheaters, just like Carlos Beltran. But happy birthday, Carlos Beltran. Uh, today on the show, we're going to deep dive Alec Mills. Who is Alec Mills? Well, you're about to find out. Uh, this was one of the Apple podcast reviews that came through, and they requested a deep dive on Alec Mills. So uh, you ask, and we shall deliver. We're also going to uh, review a prospects-only draft mock that we did yesterday. So we went about 15 rounds deep, 12 teams, head-to-head points, uh, prospects-only. So that's... You know, for you dynasty players out there, uh, we're going to get into that a little bit later on. But Alec Mills, originally I thought this was a joke when this came through on our on our podcast review, uh, but a 28-year-old journeyman who hasn't really been given a fair chance in the majors, last season made nine appearances with the Chicago Cubs, including four starts, had a 2.75 ERA, a 1.17 whip, with 42 strikeouts in 36 innings pitched. It was a small sample size, but he did show some solid skills during this time. Uh, 12.5% swinging strike rate, 49% ground ball rate, 2.75 walks per nine, 
Uh, he doesn't throw particularly hard. He's around 90 miles per hour, but apparently during the spring, his velocity was up about a tick on the on the fastball. And I watched a spring training start of his earlier today. His secondary stuff has some really interesting movement. Like his changeup, it's not like Luis Castillo. It's like a poor man's Luis Castillo. Like he gets some pretty good movement on his changeup uh, and on some of his breaking pitches there with the slider and the curve. So there is apparently some intrigue. I heard his name kind of floated about a little bit throughout spring training as a sleeper. Uh, he's battling out, you know, Tyler Chatwood or was battling out Tyler Chatwood for the fifth starter job in the Cubs rotation. Uh, Scott. What do you know about Alec Mills, if anything, and are you interested? Uh, well, to be honest, when you first mentioned the name just now, my first thought was of the old Orioles reliever, Alan Mills. <laughs> I thought that's who we were going to talk about for a second. So that's, uh, I'm reluctant to say too much because I don't know how much patience our audience has for a full-length Alec Mills discussion it did seem like Tyler Chatwood had was coming close to wrapping up the fifth starter job so we're talking about a 28 year old an unproven 28 year old who's likely designated for long relief here uh and that's that's about as far as I want to go with it yeah it, it doesn't seem uh I, I don't know like he, he looks interesting like from just looking at what he did last year. Like there, there are some not uh, uninteresting things about him. Most specifically the 67 mile per hour curveball, which is something that you just love to see. Um, and you know, his production last year in the majors was pretty good. He got lit up in triple a, but you know, who didn't uh, his numbers before that were decent. It just like Scott said, it does sound like Tyler Chatwood had the edge uh, from from what I remember reading during spring training. Anyway, now, Tyler Chatwood, uh, as Tyler Chatwood's history has shown, Tyler Chatwood locking up a rotation spot does not mean that Tyler Chatwood will spend a long time in the rotation. He's pretty not good. Um, and so, yeah, if Alec Mills gets an opportunity, there, there are enough interesting things going on that, um, you know, I would want to want to see him get a chance but but he's certainly not someone outside of an NL only league right now who uh I would have any interest in hey man we call these deep dives for a reason it's Alec Mills day man we are going deep but uh yeah look it's this is a name to look at maybe an NL only I know we had a question yesterday about AL only league so if anyone out there is still playing in an NL only league you know your 15 team mixed anything deeper than that um Alec Mills maybe a name to pay attention to. I think some of the skills here are intriguing, uh, and he kind of, you know, was standing out a little bit here in spring training. But asking you shall receive. You want a deep dive on Alec Mills? Uh, we will give it to you, and we're also going to give you some prospects talk. But before that, I do want to remind everybody uh, that the Pick Six podcast is alive and well, and it's going on right now, and you should be checking that out. 32 top prospects have been drafted, and Will Brinson and the team are breaking them all down. The guys podcasted right after day one ended, so you can check out their immediate reactions, plus their winners and losers from round one. It doesn't stop there. Pick six will be reacting after each day of the draft on Friday and Saturday as well. Download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are found. One final note, make sure to also support Adam and the Fantasy Football Today crew uh, as they are diving into the fantasy-relevant prospects that are being drafted currently in the NFL Draft. Speaking of drafts, prospect-only draft. Yesterday, 12 teams, head-to-head points roster, 15 roster spots. Uh, not a head-to-head points roster, excuse me. A head-to-head points league. Uh, the roster spots were just 15 roster spots. Best player available. Uh, you don't have to take a certain number of hitters. You don't have to take a certain number uh, of pitchers. And we often talk about how most prospects will not reach their full potential. But there's still so much attention given to them. Rightfully so. I mean, a select few will become the next wave of talent in baseball. Uh, regardless, you know, it's still hard to evaluate them. Scott, you have a ton of Dynasty content on the site. You have your top prospects list. You have dynasty rankings. Chris, you've been writing prospect profiles. You guys are well-versed in prospects. What are some of the things that you pay attention to most 
when deciding which prospects you like, Scott? I paid the most attention to... That's that's a difficult question to answer. So I, I think I think prospects are really, 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 really hard to evaluate. And I'm almost skeptical of anybody who speaks with too much confidence about any of them because of that. Um, it's 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 a lot of guesswork. It's a lot of forecasting, obviously, and on little information. I, I mean, there are stats, but the stats are being produced by developing players, oftentimes whose uh, number one goal isn't to put up the best stats they possibly can. They're they're often working on things, or it's it's weird environments. They're going against the sort of competition they're not going to see at the major league level, which you would think would make it easier, but not always. For example, the hitter bat batter the pitcher batter interface. Like if 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 it's if it's down lower in the minors where pitchers just don't throw many strikes, it's not often a batter's getting a ball in his wheelhouse. So there's there's just it's just very murky all the way around. Um, so I guess the things the thing I look at most obviously honestly is is other people's opinions. I look at scouting reports from Baseball America, from MLB.com, other places to get a good sense of what the consensus is for that player. And then I kind of take that consensus and mold it, filter it through kind of my own, uh, my own biases and sort of the things that I'm looking for from a prospect in fantasy. And that's, that's where I wind up on a player. Um, a lot of times somebody whose stats really do jump out in a way that goes beyond the scouting reports. I will favor unless there's an explicit reason that's pointed out why i shouldn't why there's this player is actually fatally flawed and these stats are totally fluky because sometimes sometimes the pro sometimes the scouting reports just missing on those guys uh, paul goldschmidt is a very famous example he was never a top 100 prospect kevin biggio is starting to kevin biggio is starting to look like one of those guys where i mean he was a top 100 prospect at the end but he put up consistently good numbers in the minors and just didn't really get taken as seriously as the numbers might have uh, necessitated. And mm -hmm. he does look like someone who seems likely to outperform his, his prospect ranking at least. Yep. And a lot of times it's, it's kind of, it's kind of skewed toward fantasy anyway, because a lot of times what brings a player down in traditional prospect rankings is, uh, having a limited defensive profile, not being seen as particularly athletic, which ironically was the case with Paul Goldschmidt. And then it turned out he was a very athletic first baseman who actually stole some bases for a while. But that that's a lot of time what brings traditional prospects down. And obviously we don't care about that much, that that stuff as much in fantasy. We don't care about, you know, is he going to have the range at second base or whatever? If If he'll hit enough, to have a spot anywhere in the lineup, he's a prospect we care about. And it may turn out to be at second base anyway. And it's actually interesting. Like, one of the things you'll see a lot in, um, in prospect discussions for non-fantasy would be something like, for an Andrew Vaughn, or, you know, a better example might actually be a Pete Alonso, because Andrew Vaughn is a very highly touted prospect. And Pete Alonso was a touted prospect, but he was never like an elite prospect. And a big part of that was, well, he's first base only. You know, he he can't play anywhere but first base. It's basically is basically the the book on Pete Alonso. And in fantasy, that matters in as much as it limits the paths to a player getting to the majors. Uh, but first base actually is a pretty light position right now, especially when it comes to young talent. And so it's actually not you you shouldn't at this point downgrade first baseman as much as the kind of traditional prospect guys do um but for for me <clears throat> i i want to look at production first and and like scott said you do have to 
Uh, take it with a grain of salt, but I struggle with the prospect who everybody raves about, but especially if they've already reached like high A, let's say, and they haven't really started hitting or pitching. Well, that does raise the red flag for me of, well, is this guy just an athlete or are they a baseball player? And those are different things. And so, you know, you, you look at someone who got drafted in this prospect draft yesterday a little later, but like Monte Harris, uh, scouting reports love him. They, they see a guy who could hit 30 homers and steal 20 bases, uh, play plus defense in center field. Like th- there are a lot of people who think he could be a future superstar or a future star at least. Oh, why? Thank you, Chris. Unless, he he hasn't actually produced outside of like maybe one kind of half season, oh. and so I uh, I don't tend to I tend to undervalue. Uh, I don't know if undervalue is the right word. I tend to devalue. That's the word. <laughs> devalue uh, players like that. Prospect. Uh, which yeah, I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but in fantasy we don't care how good you look in batting practice. We don't care how good you look in the Futures game uh, showcase. We care what you do on the field. And a lot of guys, you know, Leotis Tavares is another really, actually he might be the best example of that, of a guy who's really still uh, like a top 50 prospect. That's he's a Rangers never, outfielder, He's by the Yeah, way. center fielder for the Rangers. He probably will make it to the majors this year. He's never hit. He's just never really put up any numbers, uh, but he's a good defender, good base runner. And so it's not, that's the kind of guy, like he could hit eventually, you know, that we see that with Francisco Lindor is a great example of a guy who had a good hit tool, scouts raved about him, scouts raved about the potential there. He got to the majors and all of a sudden he's an elite player from basically day one. Yeah. So you can't go all numbers, but I just, I struggle with those guys. And for every Francisco Lindor, there's 10 Orlando Arcias who we thought were going to become the next Francisco Lindor, and it just didn't happen. You know, a lot of yeah. what we do for fantasy in general is subjective, but I feel like for prospects even more, it's just, every, like, there's so many different varying opinions, and something that you guys brought up that I thought was, it's still really interesting to me, is how... There are prospects who, based on draft status, where they were taken in the draft, even if they don't perform in the minors, will be so highly regarded for their quote-unquote tools, whereas you have players in the minors who put up huge numbers, maybe don't have the same type of draft pedigree, like in the MLB draft, or, or they weren't signed for like an absorbent amount of international money, who will just be dis- disregarded. And, you know, like someone for like Christian Walker, for example, last year, like he was someone who just put up monster numbers every season in the minors. And he was just kind of disregarded as like a quad A player. Like, oh, he'll never be anything in in Major League Baseball. He'll never be like, you know, a a contributor at the Major League level. It's so interesting to me that like prospect evaluation can go can can go like so many different ways just based on, you know, different things that you read. It's not necessarily based on stats, which for most of what we do, so much of it is based on stats. I, I think Christian Walker had the other issue, the, the other big problem going for him, and that was the de- defen- limited defensive profile I was talking about. He was confined to only first base, and that really narrows your path to the majors. It's why I think Kevin Crone, who had the most impressive minor league numbers of anybody, in, in that same system, Arizona, he's blocked by Christian Walker now, and I'm not sure... Right given the fact he's going to be 27 this year and still hasn't broken in, I'm not sure if it'll ever happen for him. So that, that can especially happen with uh, lumbering corner types, particularly ones at first base. And that's, that's part of the reason why those guys, uh, one example I gave in a column recently was Joey Votto was never more than like the 40th best prospect in baseball and that's still pretty high for somebody who's exclusively a first baseman if they're great hitters they could still turn into fantasy studs but they're never going to be valued among prospects the way that uh that that they could potentially be valued in fantasy further down the road 
the other thing you you want to keep in mind um age matters for prospects a guy like kevin crone putting up huge numbers as a 25 year old in triple a is a lot less impressive than a 21 year old in triple a putting up slightly less impressive numbers it doesn't necessarily mean that that 21 year old will be a better player but you know even in the minors there are lots of guys with a ton of experience and that means that they're more physically mature that means that they've received more coaching um you know it doesn't necessarily mean that they're better but that that level of competition does matter and so you have to keep in mind you know a guy who's like Wander Franco last year who's 18 years old uh you know even doing that in, in a ball being 18 in a ball is really really impressive yeah. the average age at, the, at those levels is still like 21 22 yes. uh, and when so I, when I see in a scouting report that such and such a player was the youngest hitter at his level or the youngest yeah. pitcher at his level anything like that his stock goes up in my eyes because anytime uh, that that was one of the things that was most impressive about Mike Soroka on his way up the ladder was just how, you know, he wasn't getting a ton of strikeouts, but he was consistently pitching well against players much older than him. And, and I think uh, I, I don't know if you had a thought to finish there, Chris, but uh, I, I wanted to point out, too, that a stat. A stat when when it comes to just looking at the stats for prospects. What I pay more attention to than like stolen base total or even like home run total is plate discipline. I thought of it when you were talking about Monty Harrison. If a guy just has horrible plate discipline, specifically if he's striking out a ton against minor league pitchers, I really worry about how it's going to translate to the majors. I think it's already such long odds when you don't have that kind of, when you don't give so many at bats away like that, that when you are, I mean, you need to have a skill set like Joey Gallo where you just completely obliterate everything your bat touches to to overcome it, I feel like. so. And, and that's the hope with Luis Robert, who was another guy who the production really wasn't there before last season. Now, he had only been a professional for two seasons in America before playing before uh, after coming over from Cuba. But his plate discipline's pretty bad. Like the strikeout rate's not alarmingly high. It's like 25%, I think, 24%. He just doesn't walk at all. And look, if you hit 328, it doesn't really matter if you walk because you're going to have a 376 on base percentage anyway, and you're going to put the ball in play. And when you've got the raw power and the and the hit tool that he uh, has and the and the speed, you know, good things can happen. But it really, it, it definitely lowers your margin for error. Um, and one other thing, I know, Frank, you're getting restless and you want to move on to, <laughs> to the actual draft. But, uh, you know, I think this is this is important stuff for people to keep in mind when you look at prospects. Uh, context matters. Certain leagues, Triple uh, A all around last year, but especially the PCL. If a guy hits a ton of homers in the PCL, it doesn't necessarily mean anything because the PCL, you've got Albuquerque, which I think is if not at a higher elevation than Coors Field, very close. Uh, you've got Las Vegas, which is at a high elevation. You've got Colorado Springs. PCL is just a ton of super friendly hitter parks. Uh, that is the the best hitting environment in professional baseball at pretty much any level. And so you have to keep PCL and, and really park factors all around. California League is very similar. A lot of offense there. Uh, in in that a ball level um i'm trying to think of the, there's is it the florida state league one of them has is is very pitcher uh i think it's the florida state league is is very pitcher friendly and so just when possible look for those park and uh league adjusted stats like weighted runs created plus which is on every uh fan graphs page for every prospect Keep stuff like that in mind, and when you're comparing two players who played in different leagues, you know, look at that way to run creative plus, and you know, make sure that you're taking that context into account because it is important. I've got to be more like Adam and just drop the iron fist and say, "No, we're Wait, moving on." 
<laughs> no, Chris, <laughs> I no. Could, I could say like five more things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so something you guys mentioned there was age-adjusted production, and you know that's why Wander Franco is regarded as the top prospect in baseball. I mean, he was an 18-year-old last season in high A ball and full A ball and was still producing at the level that he was. I mean, an 885 OPS with really good plate discipline. I mean, that's part of what we're talking about when, when you see a player that young performing in the minors. Uh, and Scott had the first pick in this draft. Surprise, surprise. Scott set up the draft. He gets the yeah, first pick. Wow. And he gets Wander Franco. Uh, the rest of the first round looks like Joe Adele, Gavin Lux, Luis Robert, Mackenzie Gore. I took Jared Kalenic at with the sixth pick. Uh, Casey Mize, Dylan Carlson. Julio Rodriguez, Jesus Lazardo, and then Royce Lewis to Chris and Adley Rutschman uh, finishes out the first round there in our prospects only draft. Now, I wanted to ask you guys, you know, where I took Kalenic here, do you think that's too early? Because, you know, just looking at what he did last year and, you know, how he's regarded in, in you know, prospect circles right now, I mean, between three levels last season, he hit 291, 904 OPS. 23 home runs, 20 steals. The the hit tool is there. He's got power. He's got speed. Solid plate discipline. 364 OBP. Uh, you're probably looking at more of a 2021, you know, ETA. But, I mean, I don't think ETA really matters much when you're doing a prospect-only draft. I think it's kind of just like which player do you think is going to turn out to be the best. And I think Kalenic is probably going to be one of the better ones in baseball. Well, I would dispute your your premise there that ETA doesn't matter. I I think it does matter because ETA well, I mean it it matters how far a player has advanced because the further they get up the ladder if they're continuing to produce that's another hurdle cleared another another stumbling block they avoided, but the sooner they're able to come up and contribute to your fantasy team in in the context of a league where you'd have minor league spots, the sooner you could then replace them, fill in that minor league spot with an, another prospect who could potentially pay off big for you. And and obviously, the sooner you're getting some help at the part of the game that matters, your your big league roster actually producing for you in fantasy. So I I do think it's an important variable in any in any prospect context, I mean, in a real life context too, but certainly a fantasy context. So that's why I actually rank Dylan Carlson higher than Jared Kalenic in my prospect rankings. I would have taken him over Jared Kalenic in this draft. I think, I mean, their numbers last year were virtually identical. It's it's amazing how close they were between those two. It's just that Carlson did it a level ahead of Kalenic and very well may have a job on the opening day roster. Uh, so oh, I would take Carlson over Kalenic. Kalenic is the kind of higher regarded pick, but it's close enough that I'd take the closer guy. Chris, you've kind of soured a little bit on Carlson, right? I, I believe we spoke about this recently. Who would you take between the two, Dylan Carlson or Jared Kalenic? I like Jared Kalenic a lot more. Um, just in reading some of the scouting reports about Dylan Carlson, um, one of the things that really, I mean, first of all, with Dylan Carlson, he was not all that good before last year. And that's always a red flag for me. Um, I, I, like I can explain why, production. but go ahead. No, 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 that, that's fine. But uh, one of the other things that, that jumped out to me is uh, looking at um, Eric Longenhagen's write-up on fan graphs. He pointed out that um, Dylan Carlson... You know, Eric Longenhagen has access to some of the minor league um, trackman data, some of the, the batted ball data. And apparently Dylan Carlson's exit velocity is pretty pedestrian, which makes me wonder how much of the power breakout that he had last season when he hit 21 home runs after having 21 home runs in his career before that over three seasons uh, was real. He had 26 actually last year, sorry. Okay. Um, it's it's worth noting that even though he made it to AAA, most of it, it was a double-A, so it's not like it was it, the ball intro being introduced to the highest level there. But Carlson was moved very aggressively. He was one of those players who was often among the youngest at his level. Even though he wasn't performing, they just continued to push him. And he's a switch hitter, and switch hitting is something that develops late. Uh, the side that they're they're typically natural right-handers who are learning to bat from the left side, which is the uh, the side they're going to hit from most often. And that was 
kind of Carlson's issue. He didn't become good from the left side of the plate until last year. He made a huge leap there. It was much better, actually, from the left side than the right side last year. And that's what that's the main thing that allowed him to take off. But I think, like, obviously for the Cardinals to push him so hard and move him up so quickly, even when he wasn't producing, that shows how much faith they had in him eventually coming around. And it looks like he did. Yeah, the, the, sorry. The So the the, the trackman data was um, average exit velocity was about 88 miles an hour, and his hard hit rate, uh, 95 miles per hour or higher, was about 834%, which are both pretty average. Uh, now, he is... 21 so there's room for him to grow although uh, most of the scouting reports i've read also uh seem to indicate that he's pretty uh built out already you know, he's a pretty beefy dude um so look i i'm not an expert i'm certainly not a scott white uh who's <laughs> done well i mean you've done more research than i have on this stuff you know i'm i'm doing my own research and yeah um, you know, I, I have my opinions and they're educated, but you, you've certainly done uh, more reading about it. Um, I've just I've seen more red flags with his profile than uh, Kalenix, who I think could be, um, you know, a legi- legitimate fantasy stud. Like I could see his peak looking a lot like what Austin Meadows did last year. And Dylan Carlson, you can say the same for. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have more questions about it. That's OK. That's fair. Chris, you went with uh, Royce Lewis and Christian Robinson with your first two picks at 11 and 14. Uh, Lewis, 20 years old, former first-round pick for the Minnesota Twins. Uh, He struggled quite a bit, so this is interesting. I wanted to ask you about this because you said you worry about production in the minors. Last year, Royce Lewis, I mean, he still has has a power-speed component, 12 home runs, 22 steals, uh, but he hit just 236 between high A and and double A ball, uh, Christian Robinson, someone who's a little bit further away. He's only 19 years old. You know, maybe you're looking at 2022 20, uh, with Christian Robinson. But I mean, what's the deal with Royce Lewis? Uh, you know, I gotta gotta put you on the spot here. If if you're gonna criticize other prospects for not performing, I mean, <laughs> yeah. how do you uh, no, no, that's <laughs> how do you totally defend Royce Lewis? Um, so last year was tough for Royce Lewis. Before that, he had been uh, 280 to 290 over his two years. Um, 14 homers, 28 stolen bases in 2018. The the plate discipline definitely took a step back last season, and that's a concern for sure. 123 strikeouts in 127 games for a guy who uh, is not likely to hit for a ton of power is is definitely a concern. So so there are two competing things for me uh, with Royce Lewis, and and I'm I don't love the pick to be honest. I, I kind of panic. But with my first pick, it's a great spot. <laughs> but um, it's he's not far from the majors. You know, if there's an opportunity, if he if he gets off to a hot start and a spot opens up in the lineup, you know, Royce Lewis could absolutely be in the majors this year. One of the other things I didn't mention in the kind of more broad general discussion, I'm always going to value speed in prospects because one, it's just really hard to find in fantasy these days, and also. To me, it's speed is sort of like velocity with pitchers, where it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a proxy for potential, like athletic uh, athletic ability. You know, I, I think if you're a player who has an all around skill set like Royce Lewis does, and you're fast, I think it raises the floor and reduces the margin for error for fantasy um, because you don't need to hit quite as much. You know, if Royce Lewis gets to the majors and he's a two seventy five hitter. But he hits, he steals twenty five bases. You're starting him in every fantasy league. Well, Chris, tell that to Byron Buxton. Right? No, it, it's <laughs> it's not. Although, I mean, Boys? the issue for Byron Buxton is he can't stay healthy. Yeah. If he was healthy, he'd be a, a starting caliber fantasy option in at least every roto league. And he, uh, and he's still pretty hyped up. And Buxton's still pretty hyped up. I mean, he still goes, like, you would think eventually, after all the injuries, he yeah. would start to fall down draft boards a little bit. I mean, even in redraft leagues, like, I'm seeing him go in, like, the 10th, 11th round in Roto League. So, you know, people are still kind of enamored with that speed. So I get that. Uh, Jason Dominguez is someone who went with the 23rd pick in this draft um, in the second round. He's just 17 years old. And has an ETA of something like, I don't know, 2023, 2024. It's just so hard to project that far out. 
for what it's yeah. worth, the Yankees spent a franchise record $5.1 million of their international spending money on Dominguez. Uh, his nickname is The Martian. He's drawn physical comps to people like Bo Jackson and Mike Trout. Again, he's just 17 years old. Scott, how do you figure out when to take a 17-year-old in, I mean, I guess any draft, but specifically in this prospects-only draft? Because it sounds like you might lean towards players who are a little bit closer to making their debut. Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, and not everybody is that way. I had a feeling. Jason, uh, Jason, is it Jason Dominguez? That's how I thought. Yeah. yeah, I had a feeling he would go this high. And specifically, I thought he wouldn't make it past Ray Butler, who's the guy who took him in this draft. Ray Butler uh, of Prospects 365. A uh, pretty well-known guy in the prospect world and tends to emphasize ceiling greatly over proximity. So he's kind of opposite end of the spectrum for me as far as that goes. My my whole contention with that is it's really hard to know what any player ceiling is. And I intentionally, like, tr- I'm kind of like, this is kind of the Cleveland Indians uh, philosophy on prospects too. I I don't like putting a ceiling on players because they would too often break through it. And for somebody as young as 17, just signed off the international market. I mean, they are such a blank slate at that point that there's just so many hurdles still to clear so many potential stumbling blocks. They may never even get out of the starting gate really. So I generally, it has to be pretty late in a prospect draft for me to start chasing upside with those guys. However, I think Jason Dominguez, Jason Dominguez is a is a special case for a lot of the reasons you laid out. I mean, just the fact he has a nickname already at that young tells you how much hype this guy is getting. He's already been recorded exit velocity of uh, 108 miles per hour from both sides of the plate. Yes, he's a switch hitter and a switch hitter who's already that good at switch hitting. Uh, that's, uh, I mean it. He still has a lot of hurdles to clear, but that this looks like a special kind of upside that is probably worth paying up for. But man, it, it can go so wrong with <laughs> international. I mean, the, the biggest thing really, it's not so much whether he has the talent or, or there's just so many ways. You, you, the, the, the roads branch the farther away you are from the destination. You know, think about driving uh, across country. You know, if you don't have a map to get there and you just like, I'll wing it, I'll drive west. There are so many paths you could take. Whereas if you're just going around the corner to the grocery store, you really only have like two turns to go. And so that that's kind of the analogy that I would make is just Jason. Jason Dominguez could be the best player in baseball. Like that's he is such an an uncarved block that there's really no there's no limit to how good or how non-impactful he could be. He's 17 years old. He might not make it to double A. Like, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. no, I agree. In general, I do think I would make it, if there's anyone, if there's if any 17-year-old I'm going to make an exception for, it's this one. I want to skip ahead a little bit in the draft. And Chris, you took George Valera and Alec Thomas at picks 59 and 62 at the end of the fifth round and the beginning of the sixth round. And I noticed that through your first six picks, you had all hitters uh, and none of them were of legal drinking age. So is that something that you did by design? Were you, I mean, we've heard, you know, no such thing as a pitching prospect. Were you consciously staying away from pitching prospects? Were you uh, just focusing on younger hitters who, you know, maybe they're not close to the big leagues yet, but have, you know, higher upside a couple more years down the road. Yeah, I have almost no interest in investing in pitching prospects in uh, prospects only draft. It has to be a pretty rare exception of someone who has performed at a high level at a high level in the minors, you know, like a, a Jesus Lazardo, uh, like Forrest Whitley. Scouts still love him. I'm not going to invest in him in a, in a prospects only draft because someone's going to like the potential more. And there are just that, that, that analogy about, uh, you know, going on a road trip. Pitchers are like that, except you're blindfolded and you're riding a unicycle. 
and people are throwing things at you. Like there Chris are just is- so many, there are just innumerable ways that pitching prospects can go wrong. And the farther you are from the major league level, the more things can go wrong. Obviously that's true of any prospect, but man, pitching is just, it's, it's such a crapshoot unless you're a lock, you know, unless you've done it at double a, at least I, I really don't want to touch them. So I, I'd rather shoot for upside with hitters early on and then maybe start looking at pitchers a little later. It's interesting that you single out Forrest Whitley there. And full disclosure, I took Forrest Whitley in this draft with the first pick of round three. Uh, I, I don't know if you mentioned it either, Frank, but we were drafting more for a head-to-head points context than a roto context, mostly just because I didn't want to see all pitchers buried, which can sometimes happen in a in a roto prospects draft. But anyway, on Forrest Whitley, it's interesting you you single him out specifically because he is so close to breaking through. If If he didn't have such a bad like if he didn't stumble so much last year he would have already been up and even with that stumble he's still being drafted in a lot of redraft leagues so i'm you know he may not bounce back but he already he he already showed he already bounced back pretty well in the arizona fall league and and nobody was ever questioning the stuff itself what happened to that he just kind of lost control of the strike zone so uh if if he you know, kind of veers back onto the road here, he could be an impactful player almost immediately. Yeah, Scott, you kind of went the other way than Chris, where you had five pitchers uh, in your first nine picks. So you mentioned you took Whitley with the first pick of the third round. You actually doubled down there uh, with Kopech and Whitley. And then at the 4-5 turn, you took Ian Anderson. At the 6-7, you took uh, Matthew Liberatore. Uh, and then you took Brent Honeywell with the beginning of round nine. I mean, is that how you would normally attack it, or did you feel that because you had the best hitting prospect in the game in Wander Franco that you can afford to take more swings at pitchers because you already had him? I had no intentional position strategy. I was kind of like Heath in that regard. <laughs> oh, Heath where... Nips. The Nip. The Nips. Yeah. <laughs> nips. Um... <laughs> Yeah, no, I. It just so happened that that a pitcher was so often the best player available for me, and it may have been because others were intentionally avoiding pitching, which is, you know, it's not an uncommon opinion that pitching prospects are riskier than hitting prospects. The ones I drafted, I think, are very close to a make or break point. And look, if I find out sooner that a prospect is going to break, that it's just not going to work out for him and I can move on. I don't see that as a bad thing. There are always more prospects on the way. There are plenty in this 15-round, 12-team draft that I wanted to draft and couldn't because it ended too soon. So if like, it, it seems to me that the worst thing that could happen in a dynasty context, a prospect context, is you wait for years for one to pan out only to find out that he's not going to. And you think of all the prospects you missed out on because of that. That's part of the reason why I like focusing on the near term guys. And that's part of the reason why I don't mind if they're even a little riskier as long as, as they're near term. And I'm going to find out uh, very soon if they're going to pay off or not. Chris, can you reveal what your final roster looked like? Again, this was 12 teams. Uh, we had 15 roster spots. There were there were no positions. It was just most people drafting best player available uh, from a head-to-head points league perspective. Chris, reveal what your final roster kind of looked like and you know, give us one player. Choose one player on your team and, and give us an MLB player comp. Give us one realistic and one like best-case scenario. Ooh. Uh, okay, so I basically drafted the Arizona Diamondbacks top 15 prospects. Um, that's only kind of a joke. I have four of them, I think. Uh, I have Tristan Casas, first baseman for the Boston Red Sox. Lewin Davis, first baseman for the Miami Marlins. Abraham Toro Hernandez, third baseman for the Astros, who uh, got a cup of coffee last year. Royce Lewis, Lewis shortstop for the Twins. Uh, and then I drafted a whole bunch of outfielders, Corbin Carroll, Christian Robinson, and Alec Thomas for the Arizona Diamondbacks. 
Helio Ramos for the Giants, Misael Urbina for the Twins, and George Valera for the Cleveland Indians. Uh, on the pitcher side, these were all later guys. Matthew Allen from the Mets, Corbin Martin, uh, currently of the Arizona Diamondbacks, who we saw last season for a bit before he had Tommy John surgery. Tristan McKenzie for the Indians, Clark Schmidt for the Yankees, and Adrian Morejon for the San Diego Padres, another guy who we saw uh, last year. So, you know, you see there with the, the pitchers, um, you know, I definitely did look for, um, you know, guys who were a little closer to the majors. And uh, I don't know, as far as comps, you know, let, let's look at, well, Let's just look at Royce Lewis, because I think he's the most interesting of the bunch. Those Arizona Diamondbacks outfielders are also very interesting, but maybe a little further away. Um, you know, Royce Lewis, if if it all goes right, there, there's not really too much of a limit on, on the upside. You could be looking at, a, you know, a 20 to 25 homer, 20 to 25 stolen base guy who hits for average. Um, you know, maybe Francisco Lindor with a little less pop is, a is an upside play and a more likely one is still a very good player. Maybe someone like Elvis Andrews. Um, so that combination, obviously he needs to be better than he was in 2019. And he was much better than that in the Arizona fall league at the end of the season. Uh, definitely questions, but you know, he can be an impact player at shortstop and that all-around skill set, I think, makes him actually a rather safe prospect as well. Scott, how did your team turn out in this draft? Uh, give us, you know, give give us the team, the layout, you know, any maybe surprises that happened here, uh, and give us one one player with with an MLB player comp, one realistic, one, uh, one okay, best case scenario. Yeah. So, like I said, no intentional position strategy. I actually ended up without a single outfielder. Though. Well, that's because I have them all. Yeah, <laughs> and the way prospects work, I mean, some of these guys, some of these shortstops I drafted are sure to wind up in the outfield. So Wander Franco with the first pick overall, then Michael Kopech and Forrest Whitley at the round two three turn. Uh, a, a couple other guys who are close: Brendan Rogers of the Rockies and Ian Anderson of the Braves. Then Jordan Groshans of the Blue Jays, a little further away, but really like the ceiling there. Matthew Liberator of the Cardinals, Jonathan India of the Reds, another one who's close to breaking through and has really good plate discipline for what he's lacked in in production otherwise so far. Brent Honeywell, probably going to be up this year. Seth Beer of the Diamondbacks. And then I finally turned away from my proximity play here and went with Maximo Acosta, shortstop for the Rangers. That's a 17-year-old. And if I was ranking all the players from this past year's international market, I'd, I'd want to make sure I'm not forgetting anybody, but I think I'd put him second behind uh, Jason Dominguez. Uh, Cody, Ho, is it Hosey or Hoesi? I'm not sure. Cody Hosey of the, of the Dodgers. Uh, third base prospect with good plate discipline. Kind of reminds me of Alec Baum, just starting out his career. He was their first-round pick this last year. Michael Bush, another Dodgers prospect who they drafted in the first round this past year. And Braxton Garrett, a Marlins lefty who was not too long ago the seventh overall pick. And Braden Shoemake of the Braves, a first-round pick of theirs last year. He's a shortstop who uh, who should who is on the fast track and also should sink or swim here fairly soon. So, that's my team, and you want a comp. I kind of just gave one with Cody Hosey, didn't I? Um, but among the higher-end types, Jordan Groshans of the Blue Jays, shortstop who probably is going to move to third base. He's pretty big. Good plate discipline, good opposite field power. I've seen him compared to David Wright a lot, which is a few going a few years back now. I'm not sure what percentage of our audience would remember David Wright, the fantasy player, but he was a, a first-round type. And um, maybe a more 
maybe a more modern example. I don't know, maybe like Josh Donaldson. Jordan Groshans could be something like him. It's He's still pretty far down, so the comps will narrow as he gets closer to the majors. But he's somebody who's universally among, universally shows up on top 100 prospects list and is around 50th on mine. You got some uh, some of my favorite guys to target, especially in kind of the uh, post-hype mold. I love Brendan Rodgers. Uh, he's got a good hit tool, and he's going to call Coors Field his home eventually. Uh, so I just think that combination, we've seen that work out beautifully in the past. And then Brent Honeywell, uh, I had him in my queue when you took him. I considered taking him with my previous pick. Very upset that you didn't. Uh, Missed all of the 2018 season with Tommy John surgery when he was on the verge of making the majors. Missed a lot of the la- of last season with a, I believe it was a fracture in his elbow uh, in his first, I want to say it was like his first bullpen back from Tommy John surgery. So a ton of risk there. But when he was at his best, he was arguably the top pitching prospect in baseball. Has a deep repertoire, uh, including a screwball, which I'm always going to root for a guy who throws a screwball. Chris, you mentioned a comp for the player I drafted in the first round, Jared Kalenic, and you mentioned Austin Meadows. And you know, I was going to bring that up. I mean, that's kind of, I, it's kind of a higher end projection for him, but I, I think it's quite realistic. And I even had like the best case scenario as like Christian Yelich. That's like, I mean, if if everything works out for Kalenic, but yeah, I think Austin Meadows is pretty fair. Uh, someone who you know when he gets here, two eighty, a little bit of power, a little bit of speed. Um, so that those were the those were the comps that I had for Kalenic, and our, the rest of the results are going to be on CBSSports.com. Correct, guys? Yeah, they'll be up later today on Friday. Uh, actually, the the comps that I made for Jared Kalenic in my profile of him, uh, a healthy left-handed Tommy Pham as kind of a you know median outcome, as sort of like the likely outcome. Uh, Trevor Story with fewer strikeouts. Uh, as kind of the upside, or Francisco Lindor with more strikeouts. That'd so, be pretty good. Kind of the same thing. Yeah, that would, that would work out pretty, pretty well. Uh, questions. Continue to send in your questions. Fantasy baseball at cbsi.com. Uh, continue to send us some five-star Apple podcast reviews and drop in some players who want us to deep dive as well. Uh, this first question comes from Chris in... What's that? Chris in Brooklyn? Chris, did you send a question in? No, I'm just kidding. Chris in South Carolina. I play in a 12-team weekly head-to-head categories keeper league. That was a mouthful. Uh, we keep up to four players, scoring, OBP instead of average, uh, and add in hits, extra base hits, losses, and holds to so the standard 5x5. Five five. Uh, in prior years, I've tried to be competitive in both saves and holds, and I've held my own by typically starting two true closers and two holds candidates per week. It seems, though, that this leaves me quite vulnerable to losing uh, either or both categories each week. Do you think it would be more beneficial to punt or almost punt one of these categories? I think in this instance, I think you probably want to want to punt holds. Holds are much tougher to predict. They are much more spread out among uh, several players on teams. And... The leaders in holds don't get as many holds as the leaders in saves. And so in a league where people are targeting holds, that should conceivably push the price of closers down. Uh, and so it would be easier to go get, say, draft four closers and then be aggressive on the waiver wire for closers um, and do a really good job of kind of dominating that category uh, rather than trying to thread that needle with both. So I actually went the other way. I thought it would be easier to punt saves because I figured closers would still go for a higher price than oh yeah they will elite holds guys. So you know it's just easier to get like Dylan Batances on your team, uh, to get Zach Britton, to get Ryan Presley, to get players like that um, at a at a elite. fairer cost than the elite closers. Yeah. The only thing about that would just be elite clo- elite hold guys. Uh, Holds just don't, they're not as predictable. You know, those pitchers will come into games where it's tied or where they're trailing a lot more than a closer will. So there are few, you're going to have more weeks where you don't get anything from those elite holds guys uh, in that category than you will from the elite closers. 
Anything but here, Scott? You're right. The price will be cheaper. Scott, would you pawn either? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with Chris. I'm with Chris. Okay. So I'm on an, I'm on an island as usual. No, it's, yeah. it's, it's fine, guys. It's, <laughs> it, it, I mean, it kind of depends on how, how... Theoretically, yes, it does seem like the closers would go higher than the elite holds guys, but by how much, it would, it would make a difference to me. If holds guys... If reliable holds guys are essentially free, then maybe I would go more that route. But it's it's riskier than than going after just the saves, which, as we know, are already pretty risky themselves. So it's it's a worthy debate to have. This next one's from Matthew in Maryland. I can't remember if we actually answered this question yesterday. Or, we or didn't. We talked about it after. We talked about it off air, right? So Jose, Chris, Hanley, and Dontrell. Take it away, Chris. Uh, it was it was. Obvious to me, not so obvious to you, Frank. You're a fake Marlins fan. Oh, damn. Uh, Jose, Chris Hanley, and Dontrell are Marlins rookies of the year. Jose Fernandez, Chris Coglin, famously, Hanley Ramirez, and Dontrell Willis. Yeah, originally and I just Don- <laughs> I thought these were Marlins related items, so I thought it was like four Jose Fernandez, Chris Towers, Hanley Ramirez, Dontrell Willis. How could you forget Chris Coughlin? Four rookies of the year in a 10-year span for the Marlins. A Dodgers-esque run, if you remember the Dodgers in the 90s, seemingly won yeah. every rookie of the year. Yeah, I, didn't, I, didn't, I never realized that, that the Marlins had so many in such a short span of time. Well, when you, when you tear down your roster every three years, you're going to have a lot of rookies. That is very fair. I'm in a 12-team head-to-head points league with daily lineups and weekly start limits, 11 weekly starts, is the limit. With the possible shortened slash condensed season, would I be stupid to wait until the final rounds to draft my relief pitchers in a league that gives points for saves and holds? If that is If that strategy is good, who are some guys that are low-end closers or high-end setup men that I should target at the end of drafts? You know, one thing I just thought about that applies to the previous question, so I hope you're, you're still listening. Um, Shortened season, condensed schedule probably means that more of those elite setup men are going to get holds um, or saves, excuse me. So that's just something to keep in mind. It it probably does push those uh, elite setup men up a little bit. So just something to keep in mind. So you're you're uh, that guy that you said for the Mets, whose name I just blanked on, Dellen Batansis. Your your Will Hair Eye. Um, your uh, uh, who's the Chris? Who's guy? Will Harry? <laughs> well, your multiple Will Harrises. Oh, okay, Will that's, that's what we're going with. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, probably, yeah, probably not a great idea to make that joke with a lesser known player. Setup man for the Washington Nationals, formerly of the Houston Astros. He's very good. Uh, and I'm completely blanking on the Yankees left handed uh, setup Brighton. man who. Zach Britton, your Zach's Britton. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't know how many points is it. Is it saves and holds together? Is it a category of saves and holds together? Oh, it's points. It's a points so five league, points so get... for saves, yep. three for holds. Oh, okay. All right. So the saves are still more valuable. Yes, and I'd rather have guys like. I mean, all the late round closers. Keone Kella is one of my favorites. Yep. Mark Melanson of the Braves, sure. We'll see how long he holds on to that role. Even if he gets, even if he loses it, at least in this format, there's a good chance he's their primary holds guy, and Will that Smith. could apply to the ones who are entering the season in line for holds, like Will Smith and uh, the Mets, Seth Lugo, uh, the Rockies, Scott Oberg, all of those guys. So. Yeah, there there are plenty of late round targets there. It's it's when you can pivot between holds and saves like that. It's there's no reason to pay up at the position. I'm I'm already not inclined to pay up at it anyway. I love watching Chris just react to his cat because he's just like, "What are you doing?" Well, so I have a bag of of combos on my desk. I was snacking on some combos before the show. Hold on, hold on. What flavor combos are we talking uh, here? Pizzeria pretzel, and she's going into the bag. And just pulled a combo out. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a lot going on. Pizzeria Chris combos like, are, are the only answer. Chris is like having 
retros 90 eating going on combos are one of the like my most shameful secret favorite foods i love them they're disgusting <laughs> they're absolutely horrifyingly gross a little a little pretzel roll filled with like pimento cheese basically uh but they're i i love them like any road trip i've got a bag of combos there and i'm just snacking on them throughout the drive i'm with you man uh, give me combos in a slim gym and uh, that's a solid lunch for me but, <laughs> but right, i don't want anybody making fun of my eating habits on twitter ever again ever again no you you, you put peeps in coffee that's you're Not never coffee, living that tea. all right i don't Worse. drink coffee get out of here coffee uh scott yesterday i tweeted out a picture of me eating chicken nuggets i don't know if you had a chance to see it i had three different um condiments on the side there i kind of felt like the guy from breaking bad who just gets to like really? dip it in all different kind of condiments. It was an offensive photo was i don't remember that guy <laughs> you had ranch on your plate and not honey mustard i mean what is wrong with you so you know i actually left the honey mustard out i do i do have honey mustard but yeah i'm a, I'm a big ranch guy it's ranch over oh. honey mustard all day and then I also had That's, some hot sauce and um, ketchup there. I'm walking away. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Chris is out. That'll do it. I didn't think we were going to talk about Heath Nips today on the show. But, of course, uh, organically, they did come up throughout the course of today. Uh, but that'll do it. Have a great weekend, everybody. This was Fantasy Baseball Today. For Scott and Chris, I am Frank. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.